welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Well, good morning once again. So thrilled to have you here this morning. Um, If you happen to be visiting with us, we extend to you a really warm welcome. Uh, You might not know, but over the last few weeks we have been in... What, what really amounts to a very brief series, but um, coinciding with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, an event, of course, which changed the course not just of church history, but of Western history in particular. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been just exploring um, this particular um, phenomenon. Um, in the first message, I looked historically at what the Reformation was and introduce you to some of the main characters, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, And then the following week, we began to unpack some of the very famous solars of the Reformation. Now, uh, the the reformers didn't talk about the solars. They're something that we've imposed on what they talked about from a distance. But um, although they didn't talk about the solas, they talked about the themes that the, thought that the solas embraced. And there are five in particular. Uh, the most famous, of course, is sola fide, by faith alone, and then sola scriptura, scriptura, by the scriptures alone, and then three more that I want to very, very briefly touch on this morning. But we've talked about sola fide and sola scriptura. Um, a week ago, No, two weeks ago. Uh, Donald spoke on the legacy of the Reformation. Was it a tragedy or was it a necessity? And then last Sunday evening, again, Donald looked at Sola Scriptura and talked about how we must not allow that wonderful truth to be distorted by postmodern subjective individualism and turn it into a kind of a me in the Bible, we've got a good thing going mentality. You know, postmodernism is famous, or infamous rather, for asserting that we can read any work and ignore the author's intent. That really it's all about my interpretation of whatever they wrote, not their interpretation of what they wrote. And of course, when it comes to the scriptures, that's disastrous. Actually, when it comes to anything, it's disastrous. But when it comes to the scriptures, you, you simply cannot do that. And Donald talked about the need for us to wrestle with the meaning of Scripture in community and not simply feel free to make it say whatever we want it to say to us as individuals. Now that leaves three remaining solas, sola Christus by Christ alone, sola gratia by grace alone, and sola Deo gloria for God's glory alone. Now three into one doesn't go, I wasn't particularly good at maths, but I do know that. And uh, I simply can't deal with all of these three solas in the time that we have. Now, I'm assuming some things here, and I hope I'm right in my assumption, but I suspect if you're anything like me, the first two of those remaining solas don't pose a great deal of difficulties for you. I'm very comfortable with the fact that Christ alone is God's way of salvation. I know that has some implications, and we've talked about those on other occasions, but I'm comfortable with the fact that Christ alone is 
the way of salvation. I'm also comfortable with the fact that salvation is by grace alone, that I don't bring anything to the table, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling, as the hymn goes. But what I want to do this morning is focus on the last of those solas, sola deo gloria, for God's glory alone. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. It's been said that sola deo gloria is the glue that holds all of the other solos, uh, solas together. It's the center that draws the other solas into a grand unified whole. And we are told that God's highest purpose is God's own glory, that all of that he does is for his glory. And it's the last of these solas, sola deo gloria, for God's glory alone, that has sometimes caused me a little angst. And I want to try and explain to you that sense of angst that I felt and, and how over the years I've resolved it. In order to do that, I want to start by talking to you about something that will seem completely unrelated, but you'll see how it fits in a little later on. I want to talk to you about black holes. Now, black holes, are something found in outer space, the term black holes is, uh, was coined by an American astronomer, John Wheeler, in 1967, and they are one of the strangest and most fascinating phenomenon in outer space. Now, when a big star dies, apparently a remarkable thing happens. Its own gravity crunches it until it becomes a small core of unimaginable density. Matter squeezed together so tightly that the known laws of physics actually no longer cease to function. Or rather, they cease to function. Now, scientists think that some black holes may be as small as one atom, but contained within that one atom can be a mass equivalent to a large mountain. Some black holes are absolutely huge, called supermassive, and they can be millions or even billions of times larger than our sun. The extreme density of a dead star collapsing in on itself creates a gravitational pull so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape its grasp. And so everything simply falls into its center. Its gravity is irresistible. And black holes can swallow planets and stars and apparently even other black holes. At the very center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, scientists have noticed that there is a frenzy of energy in motion, imploding stars, searing solar winds, and swirling gases make up a whirlpool of light and heat. And then there's an area right in the center where simply the, the light simply goes out. And scientists call this area Sagittarius A. Apparently, it is a supermassive black hole that is trying to pull billions of stars and planets into its core. Getting too close to a black hole is called crossing the event horizon. And if you cross the event horizon, then the next stop is the core of the black hole, where you will simply be crunched, and, uh, crunched together and, and torn apart all at the same time. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, what on earth 
Has this got to do with anything? Are you simply trying to give me material for my already abundant nightmares? Well, I'm about to make a metaphorical leap right now, so stay with me. Some people function like black holes, human black holes. They pillage the world around them, seeking to suck toward themselves everything in a desperate attempt to fill the void of a collapsing self. These human black holes exert an irresistible gravitational pull on every relationship they enter into, seeking people and things to meet that desperate need they have to be at the center of the universe. We have a name for this condition. We call it narcissism. And we call the people who function like this narcissistic. Social scientists tell us that this condition is becoming endemic in our age. According to them, postmodern age is rapidly becoming one of radical self-centered narcissism. A couple of weeks ago, Karen and I were on holiday and we're at the, on the Gold Coast, luckily uh, for us, uh, although the weather was dreadful. And one morning I got up and I'm sitting on the balcony of our apartment, which actually looked out onto the beach. It was early morning, there wasn't a whole lot of people around, so of course anybody who comes along, you, you tend to notice them. And I'm sitting there thinking, reading, praying, and I look down and here comes this young lady uh, onto the beach, spreads out her towel, and then proceeds for the next 10 minutes to take selfies from all different directions. It's like, I wanted to shout out, stop it, it's not gonna get any better with time. I mean, it was laughable. I mean, how many angles can you take pictures of yourself from? Anyway, example of what I thought, oh man, that's so narcissistic. Narcissists have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. They expect to be recognized as superior. They need constant and excessive admiration. They have a strong sense of entitlement and they use other people to achieve their ends. Other people become the grist for their mill, as it were. They don't care about or identify with particularly the feelings and needs of others. For them, it's all about me and everything that's wrong with me is your fault. Now, I'm sure you've met a narcissist and I'm equally sure you're not one. And I'd really appreciate it if you didn't elbow anybody during the service because that could create a war if they really are a narcissist. Now, I don't know about you, but my mother told me never to be like that. There were lots of conversations that we had where she addressed perhaps what she saw as budding narcissism in me. And she would say to me, don't get too big for your britches or don't be a skite. Isn't that a funny word? I hardly hear that word ever now. But... Skiting was not a good thing in my young days. Self-centeredness and vanity weren't nice traits. And my mother told me, it's not all about you. You are not the center of the universe. People are not your playthings. And I, I suspect your mother or a father told you something similar. Another leap, okay? So we're talking about black holes, human black holes. When I came, came to Christ and became a believer, I was introduced to the idea of God's all-consuming desire to bring himself glory. And I read scriptures like Isaiah 42 verse 8. 
I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And Isaiah 48, 11, my glory I will not give to another. I remember as a young Pentecostal preacher going to conferences where older Pentecostal preachers warned us and they said, don't touch the glory. I didn't even know what the glory was, but I was petrified. And I thought, if I ever find out what it is, there's no way I'm going to touch it because they scared the living daylights out of me. Don't touch the glory. I read the Westminster Shorter Catechism and its first and most famous question. What is the chief end of man? And I read the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I, I read authors and benefited greatly from authors like John Piper. Let me quote you, John Piper. The chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy displaying and magnifying his glory forever. On another occasion, Piper says, God is uppermost in his own affections. On a third occasion, he says, redemption, salvation, and restoration are not God's ultimate goal. These he performs for the sake of something else, namely the enjoyment he has in glorifying himself. I read Jonathan Edwards, the famous American revivalist and perhaps one of the greatest theologians that America has ever produced. And he spoke of God creating the world for his own glory. More precisely, and I quote, for his self-glorification. It seemed to me that God created to kind of flex his glory muscles so as to allow the full manifestation of all that he is to be seen. And according to Edwards, the ultimate end that God had in mind when he created the world was to display the full range of his glory. Now, I, I could live with most of this. It did raise some questions for me, given my background, but I could live with most of it. But nagging doubts began to emerge as I read on, particularly in Jonathan Edwards, because he, Edwards said, look, look, God does love people. He created them and he wants to save them. But more than that, he wants to display the fullness of his glory. And because of this, according to Edwards, apparently God preordains some unfortunate people to eternal damnation because he wants to display the fullness of his glory in his justice and his wrath. And that God clearly values self-glorification above their salvation. He, according to Edwards, ordains evil so that he can display his grace in forgiving it and his holiness in judging it. Evil, again, according to Edwards, is necessary in order to allow the full manifestation of his glory. Now, I have to admit, at this point, some very dark thoughts plagued me. That in the early days, I did not have the courage, or perhaps the stupidity, you can judge, to verbalize. But today, I'm going to tell you what those thoughts were. This talk of God's all-consuming desire to glorify himself sounded like the very thing my mother warned me about. Don't get too big for your britches. You're not the center of the universe. Now, if God was this self-glorifying, all-determining reality who does and did everything for his own glory, how could I not connect the dots and come up with the idea that we are dealing with a divine narcissist? We are dealing with the spiritual theological equivalent of Sagittarius A, a giant black hole. 
It sounds egotistical in the extreme. Now, as I say, in my early days, I assumed that perhaps if you're, if you're God, you know, it, it actually is okay to be egotistical and a narcissistic black hole. I, I knew my questions were inappropriate. I knew they were born out of a complete lack of understanding and knowledge. So to be truthful, I tried not to go where those deep intuitions and suspicions seemed to point me. But I have to say, in my unguarded moments, I could not help but wonder what God was really like. And I resonated with a quote I read in C.S. Lewis where he said, not that, I, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread, he says, is not so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. You know, the thing that helped me through these dark suspicions and questions and made me realize that God is not a narcissistic black hole was Jesus. And I know that might sound sort of passe, but let me explain. The Bible tells us that Jesus came as God in the form of God to reveal God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His, we beheld his glory. And then verse 18, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Those three verses, verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18, are the three pivotal verses of John's introductory prologue. And actually, you can leave out all the rest and you get the guts of what John is saying when you read them in connection with one another. So Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. God looks like Jesus. John 14, 9, remember Philip's question, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus responds, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, He is the exact imprint of His nature. So the New Testament throughout tells us that Jesus is the accurate, exhaustive revelation of God's character and of God's heart. The character of Jesus is the character of God. God looks like Jesus, not some of the time, not part-time, but full-time, always, everywhere. Michael Ramsey puts it this way, God is Christ-like and in Him is no unchristlikeness at all. And I love the way Brendan Manning puts it, all of our prevailing images and understandings of God must crumble in the earthquake of Jesus' self-disclosure. If we do not allow Jesus to change our image of God, then we cannot profess Him as Lord. Now, if this is true, then God would never do something or anything that would, that, that would be morally reprehensible to Jesus. And, and if you or other people claim to find some particular characteristic in God that you can't find in Jesus, then can I suggest you, you need to go back and have another look. Because if you can't find it in Jesus, it's not in God. So my question, is God a black hole? Uh, a Sagittarius A, a divine narcissist? If he is, I would expect to find that 
exhibited and on display in Jesus. And you know what? You don't see that. You cannot see that in Jesus. There is one place in the gospel, particularly where Jesus talks a lot about this thing called glory. And it's found in John chapter 17, and uh, the first five verses, I'll read them to you. Jesus is praying, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Now, just stop there for a minute, parenthetic. That phrase, the hour has come, or the idea of his hour, is a key thought that runs right through John. You can go right back to chapter 2 at Cana of Galilee, where Mary tries to get Jesus to turn or, or to deal with the problem of no wine. And he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And throughout John's gospel, he talks about this hour and how it hasn't yet come. And now in the shadow of the cross, he's praying and he says, now the time has come. The hour has now come. And he starts to talk about this thing called glory. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is the eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now Father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now here's Jesus starting to talk about this thing called glory and the key thing is it's all in the shadow of the cross. If we're going to talk about glory you have to talk about it in this place, in the shadow of the cross. Listen, Jesus was probably around 33 years old when he died. He'd had a public ministry that had lasted between three and three and a half years. John tells us that if one were to write down all of the miraculous things that he did in this season, there wouldn't be a library large enough to hold all of the books. And yet, with all of that material to choose from, all four Gospels unremittingly hone in on one 24-hour period as the center and climax of the story of Jesus. And it's the 24 hours that begins with the kiss of betrayal and ends with the cry of of God forsakenness on the cross. And the reason for that focus, I believe, is that the cross allows us the clearest, deepest glimpse into the heart of God. Jürgen Moltmann once wrote, we can see God's hands all over creation, but it is only in the crucifixion that we see God's heart. It is through the cross and the shadow of the cross that we get to have some kind of insight into this thing that's called glory. And what we see is that God's glory is not some narcissistic black hole that he sucks everybody into, but rather the glory is about his self-giving love in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is the glory of his love. Glory is not, uh, his love rather, is not some cog in a bigger glory machine. His love is not a means to a larger end, that is his glory. I'd like to suggest to you that his love is his glory. He's not some supermassive black hole sucking everything into a display of his glorious attributes. I, as I look at Jesus, cannot see the God that Jonathan Edwards saw. 
I cannot see a God who preordained some sinners to eternal destruction so that he could display his attributes of holiness and justice in judging that. I'd like to suggest to you that you cannot have a crucified for sinners God and uh, create sinners in order to crucify them God at the same time. You've got one or the other. And as much as I admire Martin Luther in so many respects, I do not see in Jesus the God that Martin Luther spoke of. Martin Luther spoke of Deus Absconditus, the hidden God, the God who stood somewhere in Jesus' shadow. Could I be bold enough to suggest to you he had to have this hidden God standing in Jesus' shadow because he could not square Jesus with the God who preordained people to eternal damnation. You can't find that in Jesus. He knew Jesus would never do that. Jesus was not like that. Jesus went after sinners with a passion, as if he wanted to save all of them. Can I suggest he did? There is not some hidden God in the shadows who really was kind of schizophrenic, really, because in Jesus he shows great love for sinners, but in the shadows he's saying, I'm sorry, but I've preordained some of them to damnation because I want to display the full attributes of my glory. For Martin Luther and the trinity of Johns, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and John Piper, it seems that God doesn't actually fully coincide with the picture of Jesus. He's the hidden God who ultimately is more concerned with his own glory than with the salvation of lost people. And I want to scream, no. I want to say, you don't see that in Jesus. That is not what you find in Jesus. John 1.18 in the Amplified Bible says, No one has seen God, his essence, his divine nature at any time. The one and only begotten God, that is the unique Son, who is in the intimate presence of the Father, he has explained him and interpreted him and revealed the awesome wonder of his Father. The Greek word is exegesis. He has broken open the Father so that you can see him. And I want to tell you, if you're looking for characteristics in God that you can't find in Jesus, look again, because they don't exist. There is no hidden God standing in Jesus' shadow. If you can't see it in Jesus, can I suggest to you that it isn't there at all? There is not a narcissistic bone in Jesus' beautiful body. He was always about others. He was always for others, giving himself to others, loving others, seeking to save and heal others. He's the shepherd going out into the dark night to look for the one lost sheep. He's the woman passionately seeking the coin that has been lost. He is the father of the prodigal who welcomes the lost son back into the family home. There is not a God in Jesus' shadow who has actually ordained that some of those sheep and some of those coins and some of those our sons be eternally lost to manifest his own glory. I want to say to you, the glory of God is the glory of his love. Theologian Miroslav Volf says this, we don't have to give up the idea on the idea that God seeks his own glory. We just need to say that God's glory, which is God's very being, is God's love. In seeking God's own glory, God merely insists on being toward human beings the God who gives. And Bishop N.T. Wright says it like this, God's concern for God's glory is precisely recognized from the appearance of divine narcissism because God is always giving out, pouring out, lavish, generous love on undeserving people. The glory of God is the glory of his love. 
You know, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we are given a peek into the very center of the universe. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the throne room of the universe. And with bated breath, we look and say, what is at the heart of the throne? Will it be an, an infinite centripetal force sucking everything into its core? Will it be kind of a spiritual Sagittarius A, a divine black hole endlessly collapsing in on itself? Well, Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 tells us, then standing in the very center of the throne and of the four living creatures and of the elders, I saw a lamb that seemed to have been slaughtered. There you have it. The center of the throne is not an eternal narcissist. The center of the throne room of the universe is a slain, mangled lamb. Not a black hole, but a God who does have holes in his hands and his feet, which are the marks of his self-giving love. Not a centripetal force sucking everything into its core, but a central fugal force that is flinging out and drenching the cosmos and everything in it with his gratuitous, sacrificial, self-giving love. And that's his glory. That's probably a good time to clap if you, if you want to. And I know we're not clapping for fine preaching. I know in doing what you did, you're clapping because that's what in our hearts we long to know. You know, I, I don't know how many weddings I've done over 40 years of ministry, a lot. And I would say probably in 80% of those, the reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. And I don't mind that it is. I'm not making a negative comment on that. But that definition of love found in 1 Corinthians 13 is not simply a passage, a beautiful passage to be read at marriage ceremonies. It's a description of the character of God. Because we are told God is love. And here Paul defines love. And I s suggest to you that sometimes go home, read that passage, and everywhere it says love, change it to God. Because this is a description of his character. And it reads like this, love, and I'm going to change that, God suffers long and is kind. God does not envy. God does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the nature of love, and God is love. And right at the heart of that is a God who does not seek his own. That's the antithesis of narcissism. God is not a spiritual black hole sucking praise and worship and, and, and stuff into the center to make himself feel good. He's not a narcissist. God's glory is the self-giving, sacrificial love that he gratuitously gives to people. You say, well, Don, what about those passages in Isaiah that you talked about, you know, where God says, I will not share my glory with another, which sounds like a three-year-old saying, I will not share my Hot Wheels with anybody else. Well, you've got to read that in the context. The context is idols. God is talking about no gods, about idols, and he's saying, I will not share my glory with those things that are false. But listen. When we were told, don't touch the glory, God will not share his glory with another, 
I want to say to you, you are not another. You are bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, his body, his bride, and he will share his glory with you. John chapter 17, verse 22, that same passage that we read before, at the end of it, Jesus is still praying and he says, the same glory you gave me, I give them. Now what's this? Either God does not share his glory with other people or he does, and here he does. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the long prophesied Davidic king. You know, God told David, there will come one after you who will sit on your throne. And, and most people recognize that as the messianic prophecy of the one who would come in David's line. And if you go back to the time that David was uh, made king, the time he ascended to the throne, so unlike the ancient Near East kings of the day who received gifts from all of their subjects, David gives them. David gives gifts to all of the people and they go home arms laden with the king's generosity. And this Davidic king, the fulfillment of this Davidic king in the book of Ephesians, quoting Psalm 68 says, when he ascended, he gives gifts to men. The gratuitous outpouring of his love toward people is his glory. So, I do believe in the sola, sola Deo Gloria. I do believe what the reformers talked about it. I believe it very differently than, than I did in the early days where I had profound questions about this but didn't have the courage to even ask the questions. What does that mean? You know, when we are told to exhort uh, uh, you know, to worship, when we're exhorted to worship and to bow down and to praise God. Is he some kind of divine narcissist who says, give me more, more. I want more people to praise me, more people. You know, like I said, I would never have verbalized it like that. But as I've got older and perhaps more stupid and more dangerous, I've thought, what kind of God is this? And as you look into it, that was so distorted, so twisted, and this is not the God we serve. And all for God's glory is all about God loving people, sharing all that he is with others and inviting us who aren't worthy into, into that great dance of the Trinity and saying, come, join us. This is the glory of God. And I'll finish this sermon and I'll get the musicians to come as I quote probably the most famous theologian of the 20th century, a man by the name of Karl Barth. And he said this, God is he who without having to do so seeks and creates fellowship between him and us. He wills to be ours and he wills that we should be his. He does not will to be without us and he does not will to be God for himself nor as God to be alone with himself. He wills as God to be for us and with us who are not God. And I want to tell you, that's good news. That, that, that love is good news. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.